0: You're listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. The first 100 days of the Biden administration podcast series will take a look at the current political landscape and what listeners should anticipate to see from all facets of law facing this new administration.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the first in a series of podcasts on the digital economy and digital services taxes with Holland and Knight. My name is Nassim Fazel and I am a partner in the International Trade Group at Holland & Knight. I work with our public policy group extensively and particularly in this area of digital economy and digital services taxes with two of my colleagues and partners that I have here with me today who are key to knowledge and uh, the pathway on, on this topic here today. So in this podcast, we're going to provide an overview for you on on what is going on with digital services taxes today, not just domestically, abroad, um, and at the multilateral forum. We're also going to talk about why the trade and tax aspects of DSTs, as they are known, are such important issues for companies engaging in international commerce. In latter podcasts, which will follow in the coming weeks, we will delve more into the technical detail and invite other experts to join us for a discussion to uh, update you on the current developments in in these areas. So let me start by introducing you to my uh, colleagues. Alan Granwell is a tax attorney with more than 50 years experience in the area of international taxation. Alan is a former international tax counsel at the Treasury Department and brings a wealth of knowledge and perspective to these issues. Joshua Odens is a tax attorney in our DC office, where he focuses on tax policy, tax controversy, and tax planning. Josh also served at Treasury as well as the Senate Finance Committee, which has jurisdiction over all things tax. So, uh, thank you both for being here today. Let's start with some basics. What is the digital economy? An economy based on digital computing technologies. Although, in, in our world today, it is commonly perceived as conducting business through markets based on the internet and using the World Wide Web. Here are some fast facts. The digital economy is equivalent to 15.5% of global GDP, and it's growing two and a half times faster than global GDP over the past 15 years, according to the World Bank. Governments in which digital economy customers are located want to tax revenues derived from the digital economy through a new form of tax that we are discussing today, known as digital services taxes. Why? We'll get to that in this podcast today, where we plan to lay the groundwork for you. Uh, What is a DST? I'm going to hand that over to Josh to tell us a little bit more about this, and then we're going to dive into why all of this is happening. So Josh, over to you. What is a DST?
2: Thanks, Naseem. So a DST is basically a tax that applies to businesses selling digital services to consumers located within a jurisdiction. There are roughly more than 40 DSTs in effect or under consideration, but there are some common themes or, um, or elements to a DST. The first is it's generally on, imposed on gross revenues, and second, it's generally imposed on companies or entities that meet a certain revenue threshold, either in a jurisdiction or globally. Uh, DSTs are also targeted at a small number of large digital companies, so think of it as social media companies, e-commerce marketplace companies, cloud services, and web-based service platforms. Uh, So, you know, looking by example, the European Commission proposed a DST back in 2018 that would have imposed a temporary DST of a a three percent rate on revenues derived from online advertising services, receipts from digital intermediary service activities, and sales of user collected data. So the the European Commission version would have applied uh, to businesses with worldwide revenues of 750 million euros and taxable revenues within the EU exceeding 50 million euros. Ultimately, the EU Did not adopt that proposal um, but several EU countries have gone off and created their bespoke versions of a DST. So there's a range of flavors of DSTs uh, from the tax rate ranging from 1.5 to 7.5 percent on receipts from sale of advertising space, the provision of digital intermediary services, Um, such as the operation of online marketplaces and the sale of data collected from users. And so generally what we've seen is a common theme that there must be a one, a group level threshold uh, and then a domestic level threshold. And then the taxes are designed to hit certain services that once again involve the collection of data. And Alan will get into in a minute how we ended up here, but it's just worth observing that there's a lack of uh, of understanding of how, how digital economy companies make their money. And it's generally through data collection and data and use of data. And so the, uh, so the DSTs are targeted at those companies that do collect and are able to manipulate that data. So DSTs are theoretically temporary taxes until there's a global consensus at the OECD, and we'll get into the details of of the work at the OECD, but certainly these taxes are growing. And like I said, the number is is exceeded 40 in number. So as far as criticisms from the US perspective, DSTs are targeted at US multinationals. Um, That is certainly a view that has been raised to USTR and Naseem will get into that later in our podcast, and these are taxes that are targeted at large U.S. multinationals and provide an advantage to home country businesses that fall beneath a threshold. These are also taxes that are likely to be passed on to customers, and some businesses in the digital economy will be able to pass those along to customers, while other businesses Will not be able to because of the competition and the business models, but we've seen that some uh, some of the digital economy businesses have increased their costs and prices and will pass those along. To the consumers of their services there's also a you know, a significant theme that we will touch upon in subsequent uh, podcasts, but there's the potential with the DST for double taxation. And that could occur where two or more countries consider the certain revenue stream is sourced there and seek to tax the same revenue stream. Only the UK has a provision that would address double taxation. So there is a true risk that if countries are not coordinated, they could seek to tax the same stream of revenue more than once.
1: That was a really helpful foundation um, and raises a question uh, for me as not a tax person. (laughs) Alan, I'm going to pose this to you. Why can't the current international tax system simply apply to digital services? Why are we where we are today?
3: Thank you, Naseem. I think that's uh, uh, really the crux of the issue and and the Simple answer is, and then I'll get into it uh, a bit more. Is is that digital is, is a virtual uh, type of methodology. You don't have a physical presence. It, it all goes through the computer or the internet or something, uh, which is not physically situated in in the particular country. And when we examine our international tax system and the norms that apply to our uh, international tax system, which incidentally are followed by most of the world through um, the OECD, documentation and studies and and model treaties and commentaries, we find that uh, under non-digital situations for a a taxpayer not resident in, say, the local country, the source country, in order to be um, taxable in that source country, the, uh, say, U.S. taxpayer has to have Um, a form of physical presence in the source country and do business in that source country. And the physical presence can either be an office, fixed place of business, or it could be an agent which has certain authorities to bind the principal in that country. And if you do not have that nexus with the particular country, Income from transactions related to that country generally are not subject to taxation in that country. There obviously are exceptions, but that is the general rule. And when we think of the digital economy, we are thinking of something which doesn't have that fixed presence. And if you don't have the fixed presence, then under uh, generally our bilateral tax treaty system, um, a US company which doesn't have a presence but is doing things in that other country, uh, generally would not be subject to uh, local country taxation. And so we have this uh, conundrum in terms of the source countries where Uh, various of the major U.S. companies who um, have digitized their business can um, undertake transactions in that country. And based on our current system of treaties and also the local laws of the country, uh, the U.S. uh, entity would not be subject to tax. And because of the growth in this area through the statistics um, you had mentioned, these local countries uh, are seeking to find a way to uh, tax uh, income from what they perceive uh, should be taxable because of value creation in their countries. And I think at at this stage, um, let me just uh, sort of turn it back to Josh to uh, describe what is going on in terms of the OECD considerations of that issue and the initial studies. And this is sort of the the birth of this whole uh, inquiry as to how to uh, more
2: appropriately
3: tax uh, the digitization economy. Josh?
2: Thanks, Alan. So let's go back a little bit in history, back to 2013. So the OECD, which is uh, an organization that is comprised of 37 members and was formed after World War II, back in 2013 focused on base erosion and profit shifting or the BEPS project. And there were 15 action items that the OECD explored. Action item number one was the digital economy. And the question at that time was whether the digital economy should be ring-fenced or should it be taxed in a way that is consistent with norms? Do the norms have to be changed? So that was action item one. There were, within the other 14 action items, the OECD issued a series of reports and, in some cases, model legislation. It also updated the multilateral instrument, and so that those items were adopted by countries and are continuing to be adopted by countries. And then action item one, which is the digital economy, there was the OECD issued a report in 2015. That report noted that because the digital economy is increasingly becoming the economy itself, it's not possible to ring fence the digital economy from the rest of the, the economy for tax purposes. And the United States was pretty firm in that position uh and during the obama administration and the work continued behind the scenes and there was a change in administration in the united states and then in 2018 the g20 and the inclusive framework which involves more than 130 countries continued to work on the issue and delivered an interim report in march of 2018 and then in 2019 the members of the inclusive framework so that includes once again the 37 OECD countries plus almost 100 countries that normally are not involved in OECD matters, but the OECD brought them into the tent to try to derive or create consensus. And in 2019, the inclusive framework agreed to examine the digital economy and unresolved tax issues from BEPS in two pillars. And that could lead to a consensus solution to tax challenges arising from the digital economy.
3: Yeah, Josh, I think just to interject, what you are describing with uh, this inclusive framework is really an undertaking by these nearly 140 countries to uh, recalibrate our basic international tax system. So this is really a fundamental change in how Countries can impose tax on entities from other countries which don't have a physical presence in the local country.
2: I think another way of putting it out, I completely agree, is that it would take us away in transfer pricing from the arm's length standard. And in the case of Pillar 1, it would say that a digital company would have to cede some of its profits to a market-based country and i think this reflects the view of the market-based countries that it's the market and not the the technology or the intellectual property that is responsible for profits.
3: Indeed. <laughs> so that's where we are.
1: Wow. Well, thank you both um you know for really uh laying out what is a fascinating uh though clearly very complicated issue. And let me say a little bit now that we've discussed the tax side of this issue about why I'm here. Uh, For our audience, you may be wondering now that we're deeply ingrained in tax, uh, why is this trade person here? Well, let's think about the trade impacts of these DSTs and also talk a little bit about how the United States has responded to the proliferation of DSTs around the world. So, you know, we talked a bit about the digital economy. And, and Alan, thank you for answering my question about <laughs> why we are where we are. I think that the way you answer the question really hit the nail on the head from a trade perspective as well. You know, historically, when we talked about trade, we were talking about the trade in goods, uh, the movement of goods across borders. Well, increasingly, we're talking about trade in services. And even more increasingly, uh, trade in digital services. So, put simply, the uh, movement of these digital services around the world by virtue of what these services provide. So, the issue here now is that these DSTs essentially serve as a trade barrier to these services trade, and. In particular, with the increasing number of DSTs popping up around the world and the way that they have been set up, there has been a strong perception that these unilaterally enacted DSTs unfairly target and discriminate against large US technology companies. During the last administration, there were a number of Section 301 investigations launched into DSTs in Austria, Brazil the Czech Republic, the European Union, France, India, Indonesia, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. There was a lot of bipartisan support for the Trump administration launching these Section 301 investigations, which is really noteworthy because they were launched in a period of time during which the Trump administration had launched and taken tariff action uh, on imports from China uh, under the purview of Section 301. A lot of retaliation had been put in place by the Chinese as a result. Uh, The Trump administration had taken action under a number of other statutory authorities to impose tariffs as well, all of which had also invited retaliation. So while there was a lot of bipartisan consternation um, about tariffs, there was a lot of bipartisan support for these Section 301 investigations into these DSTs. And again, I think it has a lot to do with this very strong and, again, very bipartisan perception that these DSTs were unfairly targeting and discriminating against these large U.S. technology companies. So, um, you know, there, there, as I said, were a number of these investigations. And just at the end of 2020, uh, and I must add that these investigations were going on while all of the processes that Alan and Josh described for you at the OECD were taking place. While this was all taking place, the administration uh, conducted its investigations, and uh, at the end of 2020, there was an expectation uh, with Uh, heading into the new year and and the Biden administration coming in and all of the bipartisan support that I noted earlier that the Trump administration would likely take action, um, if not on all of the investigations, um, then at least on the French DST, which is where it started its Section 301 investigation process. In fact, I'm going to take a moment to to speak about the French investigation and and how that unfolded, because uh, I think it'll provide a good illustration of um, some of the decision making that occurred um, in parallel with the uh, talks at the OECD. So in July of 2020, the Trump administration, after going through its process um, investigation under Section 301 and determining that the French DST was in fact discriminatory and unfairly targeting US companies, decided to impose tariffs. But under Section 301, it also has the authority to consult with the other party. And that is what it chose to do uh, with the French government. And and the two governments, the US government and the French government agreed to pause on the tariffs uh, and to allow the OECD process to unfold um, in an effort to try to reach a deal there so that there would not have to be forward movement on tariffs. Well, that process unfolded a bit, and we reached uh, July of 2020 when a conclusion had not been reached yet, and the Trump administration announced that they were going to impose tariffs on the French, but that they would wait another 180 days before imposing them. So I'm going to stop there for just a moment, see if Alan and Josh want to provide some parallel input on on what was happening in Paris at the OECD at the time, and and some insight into why that pause might have been taken by USTR.
2: Absolutely. So a, a few things. One, Congress, and this was bipartisan, bicameral, supported the OECD inclusive framework process but it did not support necessarily the outcome because as we'll discuss in a later podcasts the outcome would require potentially legislation and a modified model. US tax treaty so the United States supports a process but does not support the outcome that is reserved for a later date the United States participated in the inclusive framework it sat at the table. The then Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Tax Affairs was actively involved in the negotiations, but there was a letter from Secretary Mnuchin on one of the pillars that provided that Pillar 1, and specifically Amount A, which goes to the IP returns in the digital economy, that that would be a safe harbor. Uh, That was viewed as not constructive by the inclusive framework and created some problems in negotiations. It's second, uh, different countries were focused on different pieces of the inclusive framework. Uh, Some of the countries wanted to adopt pillar two and were less interested in pillar one. Some of the market countries were focused like a laser on pillar one. And so the negotiations led to two reports for which we've received comments and there've been public consultations, but there are two reports that were issued by the secretariat at the OECD. So they do not reflect the views of the countries. They just reflect the view of the OECD. And that is currently where we are um, with respect to documents. The United States Recently indicated it, it, with the new Biden administration that it is changing its position with respect to Pillar One. Pillar One is now the United States is willing to consider Pillar One not as a safe harbor, but as part of a as part of a broader package for the inclusive framework that would be mandatory.
3: I just wanted to make a very brief comment. First, the Pillar One dealing with DSTs, as Josh described. Pillar Two is dealing with global minimum taxes and the interaction with our U.S. minimum tax under the GILTI regime. Why is all of this important for U.S. multinationals? The reason is it could change the way these multinationals are taxed abroad and whether they will get what we call a foreign tax credit for any local taxes imposed. We will get to all of this in future podcasts and go through the current mind-numbing sort of analysis of these two pillars, but best to do that for uh, another day.
1: Thanks, Alan. So let me pick back up on trade, because the, the way the story ended in early 2021 with the Trump administration is a determination not to take action after finding That after concluding all of these investigations and determining across the board that there was, in fact, targeted discrimination against U.S. companies. Why? You know, it was um, highly speculated that perhaps, you know, focus should remain at the OECD. Um, What USTR indicated, however, was that it would not take immediate action, but would continue to evaluate all available options and and leave it for the Biden administration to determine what steps to take. So where are we now? We have a new treasury secretary, Janet Yellen, and we have a new USTR, Catherine Tai. Secretary Yellen has already engaged at the OECD and had bilateral discussions with key counterparts like French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, Ambassador Tai said in her Senate confirmation hearing that she will work closely with Treasury to address digital services taxes at the OECD, signaling that our our focus really is going to be, you know, on getting this resolved multilaterally. However, notably on March 26, Tai's USTR made its first big announcement regarding next steps in its investigation of digital services taxes. USTR, announced that it would be preserving its perceived dural options under the law, under Section 301, for taking possible trade actions on the investigations conducted on Austria, India, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. As we noted earlier, uh, the previous USTR found that the DFTs adopted by these trading partners do discriminate against US digital companies. In its announcement, USTR also, however, noted once again that it's committed to uh, finding a solution on the multilateral level, uh, signaling that, uh, you know, there, there will continue to be a focus on finding a solution at the OECD with our trading partners. USTR also announced that it would be terminating the investigations that the previous USTR did uh, regarding the DSTs proposed by Brazil, the Czech Republic, the European Union, and Indonesia. Uh, it indicated that um, none of these had adopted or implemented the DSTs that were under consideration when the investigations were conducted last year. So, you know, if any of these countries do proceed, with adopting or implementing a DST USTR may very well initiate new investigations. Um, I think very notably um, this announcement on uh, March 26th was silent on the French DST, uh, which we have discussed today and the tax is in place, but um, one can speculate whether that is because any action taken now would be outside of the statutory per- period permitted under Section 301, or just uh, a really a firm commitment perhaps between the United States and France and um, trying to resolve this multilaterally. But we shall see. And uh, you know, this is uh, something that we will be able to dive into and, and analyze a bit more deeply on a future podcast. So I want to thank Josh and Alan and their invaluable expertise Thank you for being here today and and talking to us about what is going on. And uh, we look forward to coming back and, and sharing more insights with you in the very near future.
0: Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash ppr ppr